up these huge tabernacles and invite the whole town. Everybody would come out to the meeting. They called them camp meetings because people would travel from far away and set up camp and sleep in in tents on the property to be in the meeting. And God's spirit would start to move. And I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of people getting saved. Amanda saying, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Je- Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward to our Lord's command. Jesus saves. I mean, man, think about the joy of the Lord that would be there when you see God moving and you're in on God moving. You know what I found super interesting? Is when you come to the third verse of that song, it has a great application to today. The third verse is, sing above the battle strife. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. By his death and endless life, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing it softly through the gloom when the heart for mercy craves. You're getting a little bit of a different feeling than joyfulness. Getting a little bit of a different sense than it's all wonderful and it's all victorious. Sing it softly through the gloom when the heart for mercy craves. Sing in triumph for the tomb. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That third verse, I think, has an application to you and I from this passage of Scripture that really fits the day and age we're living in. I actually, in in preparation for this message, I started doing some research, and I'm not going to bore you. I actually printed all the stats out, and I decided not to bore you with it. I threw it to the side. Do you realize that mental illness, mental health issues, are at an all-time high in this country today? You know what's really sad? Young people right now struggle more with mental illness than ever that we know of in history. You know what they said some of the root causes of the mental illnesses are? Number one on the list is social media. Now watch this. It's crazy. You preach on social media. You tell people you just need to get off social media. Try this, mom and dad. Go home and tell your teenagers, okay, new rule for the house. Everybody's off social media and see what happens. You know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with a bunch of addicts. Literally, you're dealing with addicts. That's how those evil men wired that stuff. Those men that wired the stuff, that created the stuff to get rich, the love of money is the root of all evil, won't allow their own children on it because they understand the destructive effects of it. But they don't mind having your kids on it. And then, excuse me for a minute, I'm trying not to be too harsh this morning, but you don't have the guts it takes to be a parent and tell your kid, well, you're still a stinking teenager and you live in my house, so that's the rule. Pout if you want. And you just, because it's not worth fighting them. So you let them wreck their lives. Social media is one of the number one people, reason people nowadays have got mental issues, mental health issues. They said on top of that, the COVID pandemic accelerated everything because honestly, it shook everybody up. It's very scary. They're shutting everything down. What are we going to do about our jobs? And when your kids sit there and watch mom and dad absolutely losing it, what do you think that does to their sense of stability and security? So that fed into the whole problem. And then to make matters even worse, they said there's a major breakdown in the family structure. Families have gotten smaller and smaller 
to where it's actually really created emotional issues in the children. And then on top of that, on top of destroyed and smaller family structures, to make matters even worse, there's a social disconnect as it comes to community. But everybody is tuned in socially. You have how many friends? You have how many followers? I mean, you're not even a leader yet. You don't even understand leadership. And proof you don't understand leadership is you don't know how to follow. Nobody knows how to be a leader unless they first said, yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. When they liked it and didn't like it and just dealt with it and did what they were told because that was the rule the leader set. They're not leaders. But they wired your brain to think you are because you got how many people following. And what has happened is that the devil has come in and begun to just absolutely destroy not just society and humanity around the world, but guess what he's done? He's also impacted the church. You know what you got when you go to church nowadays? You got a bunch of people that aren't even really joyful anymore. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your You need some joy. Now, we've been going through psalms, and it's just unbelievable to me how many of the psalms are so negative. (laughs) Have you ever noticed? I'm like, Lord, I'm looking for a positive message because I really feel like I need to give them a positive message. And then, like, yep, not this week. Yep, not this week. Yep, not this week. Then we come to this passage, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I finally get to talk about joy. But what you're going to find in this passage is that There's more to joy than just, okay, everything's hunky-dory. Everything's all tulips and hearts and roses and rainbows and butterflies. That's not the reality of it. You and I need joy. We have some things to be joyful about. And they're all in the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning. But listen, we have become so depressed and so discouraged. We are inundated with constant negative, 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 negative. And then they're always talking about the power of positive thinking. Turn on the news. They traffic in fear, apprehension, garbage, dirt, pain, depression, and driving more and more and more of a wedge all the time. Everywhere you go, you are inundated with negative, 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 because that's what sells. And yes, even the church today is drastically impacted by the culture in which we live. Folks, you are in a battle this morning. And you have to realize that there is a gloom about us. There is a pressure on us spiritually. I've told you before that in the book of Daniel, the Bible says that when the, when, when the Antichrist comes to the forefront, he's going to seek to wear out the saints. And as we get closer to the coming of Jesus Christ and the spirit in this world that is more and more Antichrist, even the spirit in church... I said, even the spirit in church has become antichrist. The people that are trying to follow God are going to be more and more exhausted because his game plan is to wear you down without you even realizing you're getting wore down. You know what you need this morning? Verse 15, you need to know the joyful sound. Don't miss it. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. You know, a lot of people hear the joyful sound, but they don't know what they're hearing. You need to know the joyful sound. I'm telling you this morning, there's three things I want to pull out of the passage, but don't worry, there's a bunch of things under each one, okay? (laughs) 
You're like, that's not funny. We know how long you've been preaching lately. I get it. Okay, I'm trying. There's three main points in this passage that I want to point out. You know what's a joyful sound to me? Look at verse number one. The mercy of God is a joyful sound to me. He says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. You know what he says? I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord for how long? You know why you need mercy? Because of something really negative. Think about that for a minute. I will sing. I'm excited. I'm thankful. I'm joyful this morning that I serve a God who is a merciful God because I'm telling you, I realize how bad off I am. I realize it more than you think I do. Hey, listen, I need God's mercy this morning and I'm thankful that He's abundant in mercy and I want every generation to realize that God is a great God and a merciful God. One of the things that keeps people from coming to God is their... Their sin. Talked to a great big old boy this week. I mean, a great big old boy. He said to me, he said, I mean, he's, he's packing on the pounds. Like, he's young, you know. And he's trying to get bigger. He's like, hey! I said, hey, what's up? He said, Brandon told me you're a pastor. I said, yeah, I am. Dude, I've never been to church in my life. I don't trust him. He said, but I'm going to come to your church because I trust you. I said, well, it would be great to have you. He said, to be honest, I'm just a little nervous. I said, listen, man. I'm not going to say his name. I almost said his name. I said, listen, man. There is nothing to be afraid of when it comes to coming to God. What you ought to be afraid of is not coming to God. God knows everything there is to know about you already. And God looks down on you with pitiful mercy. So you, I'm not being mean right now. I'm being, I'm being, I'm calling the baby ugly. You're an idiot. If you run from that God, because you cannot change your sinful state. There's nothing you can do about it. Solomon said in his prayer, there is no man that sinneth not. And Paul repeats it in the New Testament, there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh, I'm sinful, so I'm not going to God. I'm sinful, so I'm not opening my Bible. I'm sinful, so I'm not going to church. I'm sinful, so I'm not going to try to get closer to God. Hey, listen, if you understand that God is merciful, then you come to Him with your sin. You come to Him in your sin. You say, God, listen, I know what I am, and I need your help. Hey, listen, sin will rot your soul. It will wreck your mind. It will destroy your joy. It will make you suicidal. It will make you desperate. It will get you where you don't see the point in living. It promises as you pleasure and brings you pain. And for some reason, that awful flesh of ours is always going to that sin. And you got a God in heaven who sits and looks down at your sinful state and says, look at that poor little wretch. If that little wretch will come to me like they are, 
I'll have mercy on them. God ain't looking for perfect people. God's looking for sinners. You know what Jesus said? I came not to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous. Self, you ever see get around self-righteous Christians? Ain't nothing worse than being around self-righteous Christians. Give me the sinners that are trying. Not the sinners that are making excuse for it and love their sin and flaunting it in the face of God's mercy and God's grace. I'm talking about the sinners that are trying. Bring me the sinners that want God. I'd rather hang out with them. Hey, I don't care if we stay poor. I'd rather hang out with a bunch of poor sinners than a bunch of rich, self-righteous people. God didn't call the come, to, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You understand the definition of mercy? Listen, I did something that anybody in this room can do. To define this word. Okay? I heard a preacher recently talking to people about, he was talking about understanding what they read and making sure they're reading with understanding. You need to grab a hold of what this is saying. And then he was reading his Bible and it says, The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm not the brightest, sharpest knife in the drawer, you know. But you just got on them about understanding what they're reading, and then you quote a Greek word to them. And they're like, I never heard Greek. When they're looking at their English Bible, they're like, oh, I guess logos must mean word. All he did is make himself look good to the people. All he did is get a little bit of manipulative leverage over them. You know what I did? I looked up this word in a Webster's 1828 dictionary to give you what God said mercy is in your language. You could do that for yourself. I'm not getting on you. I'm just trying to help you like God can teach you the Bible. Mercy is that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or treat an offender. Now, this is me right here. Or treat an offender better than he deserves. Hey, it's a joyful thing to say, man, God's been so much better to me than I deserve God to be. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment. Mercy is the thing that, that drives the individual, that induces, you use the word to induce labor, to begin labor, to push that thing to start happening. It induces, mercy induces that individual who actually has been hurt by you to say, guess what? You hurt me. I'm injured by you. You've wounded me. You've done wrong to me. My heart is broken by the treatment that you've given me. But hey, yeah, I'm not going to do back to you what you deserve me to do. I'm not going to go ahead and afflict the punishment on you that you deserve. Something inside of that individual. It has to do with a character. It has to do with a heart. It has to do with a motive that pulls them back from giving you what you earned. Forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. Now, come on. Every single thing you've ever done wrong, God has whooped you as bad as you deserve. Really? 
Every person in this room has had God go lighter on them than they deserve God to go. Every person in this room has got away with some stuff and that heavenly father looked and said, I ought to stink and knock his teeth out, but I'm going to pretend I didn't see it. Every person in the room has experienced the mercy of God. I'll prove it to you. Did you wake up this morning? Did you breathe in and it worked? Do you have some food in the pantry? Did you get here? Can you see? Can you hear? Can you talk? Hey, God's been merciful to you. That's more than any sinner deserves. Every one of us deserves to be in the pit of hell with our back broke because of our sin. And yet we got a God in heaven that says, you know what? I'll let it go. Man, he said, I want every generation to know how great God is. I want every generation to know God's a merciful God. God hasn't done to me what I deserve. It implies benevolence. Watch this. Tenderness. Mildness. Pity. Or compassion and clemency. But exercised only toward offenders. You know why a lot of people don't understand the mercy of God? Because they think they're so good. When you realize what an absolute soup sandwich you are, when you realize how sinful you are, when you realize how far you fall short of the glory of God, then you can look and say, man, God, I am an offender. And I cannot believe that you've been as good to me as you have. I cannot believe that you allow me to get up this morning. I cannot believe that you've blessed me like you have. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. If he was not merciful, I could not continue to serve him. You understand? I don't have what it takes before God to even try to serve the Lord if it wasn't for his mercy. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I want to bring some joy to your heart. I know I preach hard and I focus too much on all the negative stuff, but my goodness, man, ain't it a blessing to know that I'm serving a God that's not coming after me every second of the day, that's not giving me everything that I deserve. It really is a blessing. The joyful sound of God's mercy is seen in the first part of this passage. And look at verse number 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. His mercy causes my heart to sing because it is proof of his love. I was thinking about it, and I guess something that I imagined, I'm not making any kind of a doctrinal statement on this or whatever, but in my mind and in my heart, it, it looked to me like the garments that clothe his mercy are garments of love. I mean, when he says, you've hurt me, you've done wrong to me, you're not what you should be, you really are failing. And I mean, come on, man, who in the room is like, no, I pray as much as I should, I witness as much as I should, I read as much as I should, I'm always thinking about Jesus like I should, I don't do the things I shouldn't, I do do the things I... I've really arrived spiritually. We don't have any takers? Okay, well then, since we don't have any takers, look, it is his love... It is the fact that he has a, he's a loving God and he cares about us that even accepts us or allows us to do what we do for him. I, I, I cannot look at myself and, and justify any good thing that God's done for me. When I look honestly at who I am, I'm ashamed of myself before God. It's his loving kindness that clothes and, and covers his mercy. It's, it's coming out of the fact that he is a loving father. 
Now, here's where it all gets messy. This is where we all get discouraged and sometimes forget that he is merciful at all. Because he's a loving, merciful father, guess what that means? That means that he doesn't always overlook. You do understand that, right? So a loving father actually gets to know his kids. It takes time and effort and energy and investment and focus. And like you don't feel like it, but you're going to have to go out of your way sometimes. Like not very convenient time, but go ahead. What do we need? What are you talking about? What do you, right? You, you put your effort and energy into that individual. And then you have all these individuals or a couple individuals or one individual if you're one of the really smart parents. But some of us, I'm just kidding. I'm thankful for every kid I got. We stopped when we needed to stop. We had exactly what we wanted and what we need. Okay? Shouldn't say things like that. It sounds so bad. Anyways, a parent focuses in on that individual kid and knows that kid, right? So you get to learn that child and what that child needs. Now, as a parent, sometimes you recognize like some children respond better to positive affirmation, right? That's, that's what will help that kid's heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a controlling and manipulating the behavior. It's figuring out how to get to the heart of that individual because you as a father and as a mother, what you don't know you're doing is you're programming them to understand God a certain way. Have you ever noticed that people whose dad takes off and just leaves them, and they grow up without a dad, they have this thing about God like he kind of doesn't really care. Like, it's all cool. God doesn't care. God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love, if they even accept God at all. A lot of young men have trouble dealing with God because they never had a dad in their life. You ever notice that when you have a parent that's overly harsh all the time, and it's always constantly cut and dry and every issue and situation and circumstance. And there's no, there's no understanding. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no, okay, so explain to me what you meant when you were an idiot and did what you shouldn't have done, right? Okay, okay. Because uh, they always want to have, have a word in, right? Well, when you actually are so harsh that they can't ever have a word in and not when they're 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, just so you know. Well, they begin to think that God is this mean, hard, harsh, austere, cold. It's like, I don't even need to deal with that kind of a God. I'm not going to church. I'm not ready. There's all this pressure, and I can't live up to the pressure, and if I step out of line, he's going to bust me. I'd rather not even have him in my life. When you've got an overly pacifistic parent, no rules, no standards, go do what you want. I'll never ruffle your pretty little feathers. You got a kid that thinks God's cool with everything. They'll fornicate, they'll drink, they'll dope, they'll do all the rest of that stuff, and they won't, they won't have any understanding of rules and boundaries. And by the way, parents, the most miserable kids you've ever seen in your life, the most emotionally destroyed kids I've ever seen, are kids who do not have boundaries by the parents. The devil quotes scripture. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And he takes what that thing is trying to teach you men about being a good dad and twists that in your mind to say, oh, if my little darling is getting mad, I'm not going to ruffle the feathers. That ain't what that thing's talking about. You know what makes kids mad? No boundaries. You ever see the little ones in the store and the mama says, no, no, you can't have that. I want it! I want it! I want it! You know what, you know what I know for a fact? I know for a fact 
that that kid always gets what it wants and there's no boundaries. And that is the most miserable individual you ever met in your life. You say no. We learned a little trick because, you know, everybody thinks you're abusive and all this stuff nowadays, you know, and you don't want some stupid nut, like, flipping out on you and trying to call social services and all the rest of that stuff, right? Because you're all paranoid that they're going to come after you. It's just not illegal to, to spank your kids. It's not illegal. Smart cops say, um, just whoop them and I, you won't have to call me, you know, sorry. We, we'd do a little trick where we'd hold them. We'd kind of like wiggle around inside there and get the little skin on the inside of the leg. And we'd just do a nice little, what did daddy say? And he, Everybody's like, oh, that kid's a monster throwing a fit now. That kid's really hurting right now. <laughs> because when they're real little, they're really smart about they can't get me right now. They try all that stuff, boy. They get so smart, like we're in public, and they don't do anything when we're in public. So you find little happy ways to let them know you just stepped over the boundary. Do you know when you do that with kids, it might make them angry in the moment? But those are some of the happiest kids. They will always test that boundary because they're trying to see if you're faithful and if you're still there and if those boundaries are still there. And whether or not the rules are the same, it gives them stability. You are in a generation of Christians that think God has no boundaries. And you've got a very miserable and unstable church because there's just no boundaries, there's no rules. There's really God's just cool with everything. He's a lazy, pacifistic dad. He's not paying any attention. He's over there playing, uh, what's the video games nowadays? Uh, whatever. You won't say it because you're like, I'm not outing myself. <laughs> you're over there playing some video game and ignoring everything you're doing. Their minds have been programmed that God is the, the father of the sitcoms, the doofus. The moron. And dad seems to act the same way. A loving, merciful father is not a father that's unrestrained altogether and allows you just to do whatever you want. Keep your finger here in Psalms and go over to the book of Hebrews with me if you would, please. I want you to see Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, please. Now watch this thing about God. It's pretty wild. It tells us to consider Him. Think about God. Think about Jesus Christ, who endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself. What does that mean? Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So he's saying, you're going to get tired, you're going to get wore out, you're going to get depressed, you're going to get discouraged. If you don't stop and consider something about Jesus Christ, there was a contradiction in him of sinners against himself. What was the contradiction? The contradiction was this. The only person to ever walk the planet and receive something bad that he did not deserve was the Lord Jesus Christ. The only person who had a just reason to say, Why are you doing this to me? What have I done to deserve this? Was Jesus Christ. And he did that for you. So you can experience mercy. He took your punishment. He took my punishment. He took our sins. Consider that fact. When you think God's not fair to you. That's what we're supposed to think about. Verse number 4 says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus Christ was in such agony. I think we talked about it last week. He sweat as it were great drops of blood and then shed his blood, striving against sin. 
You, you, you've had some battles with temptation, I'm sure, but you've never gone to that level. You cracked first. Every human being on the planet cracked first. He didn't crack. Now watch this. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. What happens? You get weary. You lose your joy. Why? Because God whoops his kids. Why does he do it? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Oh, you mean when God gets on me, when things go bad, when I reap what I sowed, when, I, when I, I stepped over the line and God smacked the slats out from underneath me, I flipped upside down and broke my shoulder on the ground. I mean, he wiped me out, man. That was actually his love? 100% that is his love. He knows how we're wired. He understands every single individual. When you look at other people's lives and say, why did that not happen to them, but it happened to me? You are not wise, the Bible says, because he knows every kid, and he understands what everyone needs, and he tries and traffics in and works on the hearts of individuals. And he's all wise and all knowing, and he cares and he knows what you need. So every once in a while, he lets some bad stuff happen to you. Because you need to learn a lesson. Folks, it's his love. My dad used to whoop the fire out of me, man. I mean, I think that was his way of not cussing. Cussing, you know, I'm going to beat the fire out of you because the only other thing would be, you know what I mean? I knew what it meant. I knew it was on, man. You know what I knew? I knew my dad loved me. It, It actually didn't make me bitter towards him when I had it coming and I knew I had it coming. And he backed up what he said. Because what he was doing was trying to instill some character in my life. He was trying to instill some boundaries in my life. He was trying to prepare me for the day that I would leave his authority and leave his house. And then I would be the leader. And then I would have some children I was responsible for. I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord. With his mouth, I make note, thy faithfulness to all generations. He was trying to pass something on to me. It's proof of his love. The Bible says that if you spare the rod, you don't love your son. So some of you mamas that won't let daddy be daddy, you don't love him. You don't love those kids. You're more worried about how they view you or living your life vicariously through them than you are about their future. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be too hard on you. I'm saying when God loves you, when a father loves his children, he exercises discipline in their life to teach them you should not do some things. Because there's bad repercussions with those things. It's the love of God. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, you've got to make it through those times. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof we all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For verily for a few days, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth joyous. See the connection? 
You feel like you've lost your joy. Things aren't going very good. Well, in the moment, it's not joyous. But grievous, actually. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You know, your Christian life isn't a process of exercising and getting stronger. And part of that process is a heavenly father that will whoop you when you step out of line. Because you learn like, okay, I'm not doing that again. My Christian life is a story of a guy who kept tripping and falling and getting back up and tripping and falling and getting back up and tripping and falling and getting back up. And I can show you the battle scars and the pain and the errors and the times that I was stinking broken and beat down. I tripped and fell at the wrong time, rolled down the hill, wound up in a valley that I couldn't get out of. And a merciful father walked along and said, hey, stupid. That's definitely me. (laughs) Messed up again, huh? Yes, sir. Look a little busted up. Yeah, I am. Come on. I said, okay, thank you. I can't believe you always show up. And he pulled me up out of that valley and put me back on the right path. I'll never forget when I was a little boy. I can remember it to this day. My mom and dad said, do not run in the church sanctuary. That church sat 800 people. And it was a long sanctuary and it was on a slope. And down at the front, they had this huge Lord's Supper table. And Dad was talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. You guys think I'm a talker. My dad can talk. He knows a lot more than I know, and he'll let you know everything he knows. I mean, he's, he's very smart. And he was over there talking, and it was getting late, and there wasn't many people left. And one of the other kids was running. Hey, he ain't looking. <laughs> if you know me at all, you know why I got whooped so much. I deserved every bit of it. I come blitzing down that side aisle as fast as I could. I cut across and I'm running this way and then I tripped and I stinking hit my head on the Lord's Supper table right on the corner of that thing and was just bleeding all over the place. My dad come walking over to me. Come on. Took me out in the bathroom and I was small enough. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was small enough. I might have been 14. <laughs> but he, he sent me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. He set me on the countertop, and he said, this one needs stitches, but you ain't getting them. I ain't taking you to the doctor and spending money on you. It wasn't that bad, okay. I ain't taking you to the doctor and spending money on you after you disobeyed me. You got what you deserved, boy. You got one of those little butterfly things and pulled it together and cleaned it up and see. Not a good dad, man. He didn't whoop me. I already split my own head open. He patched me up. And then he gave me that, that look that scared me half to death and melted my soul. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, I didn't care about my forehead. I was worried about him. And I remember him looking at me and patching me up and saying, all right, well, quit crying. You did it to yourself. Knock it off. Suck it up. Be a man. I'm like, yes, sir. That's a merciful father. That's your heavenly father. Is something to sing about, man. Because you keep messing up. And he keeps reaching down and picking you up. Because he loves you. So when you're all messed up and busted up and he lets you get in it and it's part of his chastising hand, don't, get, don't despise him. Don't despise your circumstances. Don't get upset about it. Don't get out of bed out of shape. Don't be a rebellious little brat. 
He got on you because you needed it. And now he's here to patch you up. After you messed it up, he fixes it. That is called mercy. You know what aggravates me? Go back to Psalm 89 real quick, if you would, please. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be too much longer here. Go back to Psalm 89. You know what aggravates the fire out of me? All these guys try to tell you that, that you don't have to fear God. You know, in Psalm 89, they come to these passages and they say, it's not afraid, it's reverential trust. Right? That's hogwash. You won't understand mercy if you don't have fear. When it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, guess what it means? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look at verse 7 and let me show you my point from the Bible. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And, and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Well, if fear is nothing more than reverential trust, why did God repeat himself? He's adding to fear reverence. Fear is defined as a painful emotion or passion excited by an expectation of evil or the apprehension of impending danger. When my dad said, don't run, I was like, he ain't looking clear from danger for now. Go! When my dad looked over at me, boom, busted. Guess what hit me? Guess what hit me? I, I wouldn't sit still in church. I would not sit still in church. I, I have ADD and ADHD and ADHD plus and all that stuff. I still have it. So I'm, looking, I'm sitting in church and I cross my eyes to see how many, and then I try to count all the lights with my eyes crossed. I'm not joking. I'd shake the pew like that with my leg, right? And my parents didn't believe I'm putting me on pills, no pills, but the gospel, you know what I'm saying? So the preacher would stay from the pulpit, and Brother Reagan's had worn the carpet out back there, taking him out, because I mean, I would, he would be up and out, Dad take me downstairs, we walk all the way up into the educational wing, down into the basement, underneath the steps, back in the room, where there, is, there was some shelving down there with wood on that, shelves. And I remember walking back, Dad would go out there, and he would pick out his instrument of torture, you know, he'd try to find the right piece, you know, he'd go through taking his time, looking through the stack, and I'm standing like, oh, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. I'll never forget the one day he grabbed one to move it and it had nails in it. And I thought, oh, I've really done it now. I mean, I literally was like panicking, like, whoa, this is going to get on. Never been whooped with nails in it. He just moved it. He was not like that. He just moved it. You know what I had? I had a fear of my father. I was afraid of impending danger when I didn't do what he said. And do you know what that produced in me? Because he wasn't an abusive father going too far. He let me know the rules. And then when I broke the rules, he backed up what he said. Do you know what that produced in me? A tremendous amount of love, respect, safety. He taught me from a very early age, you can come ask me any question on the planet. Nothing is too embarrassing Nothing is too private. I'm your dad. You ask me, and I'll teach you what you need to know. And I knew he loved me, and I knew I could go to that man and ask him my questions. And I did. 
My love for him, it was different than mom. My love for him was based on fear. I saw an authority figure. I saw a strong figure. I saw stability. I saw a safe zone. And I saw one that loved me enough to not care whether or not I was flailing around and screaming and yelling. He said, sit still. I, you know what I used to do? He misunderstood me. He did misunderstand this. I used to see if I could make it through the spankings without crying. He thought I was being tough and stubborn. So he kept going. We had a miscommunication. I was trying to impress him. Because every time I scabbed my knees, I would come a man up. Suck it up, man. You're all right. You're all right. Be a man. You know, it's like, okay, I won't cry. I won't cry. I won't cry. I can do this. I can make it all the way through without crying. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Gonna... What's wrong with you, boy? Okay, <laughs> stop. Fear is fear. And you and I need a fear of God. Fear expresses less apprehension than dread, dread less than terror, and terror than fright. The force of passion in fear begins with the most moderate degree, which is fear, and then dread, then terror, then fright. So when God says the most moderate fashion is of this emotion is fear. So when God says fear the Lord, you should fear Him. Fear is accompanied with a desire to avoid or war off expected evil. Ward off expected evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If that's not what God wants me to do, then I should not do that, because if I do that, it has repercussions associated with it. Got it? You should fear God. Because if you don't fear God, you don't understand mercy. Fear is uneasiness of mind upon the thought of future evil likely to befall us. In other words, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Reverence is different than fear. It's to regard with fear, mingled with respect and affection. Fear mingled with respect and esteem, it implies love. And affection. Do you see verse 7? God is greatly to be feared where? In the assembly of the saints. More Christians need some fear of God. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Man, what a joyful sound that we have a holy God and a, a Father that watches us and, 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 and analyzes our every move and that is not a slack, lazy God, but when we need it, He whoops us. And so we go through bad times. Those things are not intended to destroy you. He's not out to hurt you. He doesn't get on your case because He doesn't love you. He does it because He loves you. So when the going gets rough, when the chips are down, when God's getting on your case, hey, it's time to draw closer to Him. It's time to get in tight and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinful man. And then you can look at it later. His strength shows up. It's all in the passage. I mean, a strength that he puts into you that you don't have on your own to make it through the hard time. Psalm 89 is laid out in a very weird fashion. It shows the second advent of Jesus Christ first and then the first advent second. You can look at it later. And he, and he keeps tying back to the fact that there's a day coming when we're forever, ever, and ever going to sing of the mercies of God to all generations. He's trying to point out that there's some hard times in this life. There's some difficult moments. There's times when God's hand is sore against us, when things are not going our way. But hey, listen, no matter what, 
His mercy is new every morning and great is His faithfulness. You know what God's looking for in those bad times? How many of you parents ever get on your kids about something and watch them stiffen up against you? Right? Hey, that is not time to get soft. That's time for you to detach your emotions and say, that's the rule, that's the line, that's the punishment. You either snap out of it or I'll add to it. Have a nice life. And go on about your day. Because the point of punishment is not to produce more rebellion and pressure and push back. The point of punishment is to produce a broken and a contrite heart that God will not despise. And when the individual recognizes, man, God, you have a character about you that's merciful. And I'm going through the ringer and I'm getting beat down and I'm getting depressed and I'm getting discouraged. But all that must be because I'm not close enough to you. You're trying to tell me something, aren't you? And since you're a merciful God, in my hard times, I'm getting closer to you. And throw yourself at the mercy of the court. You know what you find every time in God? When he sees that you and I acknowledge what we are and what he is and we get close, you know what you'll find every time comes out of God? Mercy. Boy, he just pours it out on you like you would not believe because all he wants is your heart. That's all God's after. I don't want to come to church because if I give God my life, then he's going to make me change everything. God don't need your life. He wants your heart. And if you'll give him your heart, you'll sing and be joyful of his mercies. He will never leave you astray. He will never leave you out in the cold. He'll come get you sooner or later. And he'll pull you up out of that pit. And he'll set your feet on a rock. And he'll establish your goings. And he'll bless you. And he'll use you in ways you never thought he could. Turn with me in this morning in conclusion to Psalm chapter 30, please. Psalm chapter 30. Boy, I'm so thankful this morning that I serve a merciful God. I, I just, it, it, it actually rejoices my heart because if I did not believe in His mercy, if I did not genuinely believe that He's a truly merciful God, I would get so discouraged. Every bad thing that's happened, I'd be like, yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, I deserve it. Of course I deserve it. I'd be that inmate man in solitary confinement when they crack that thing open. I'd be spitting through the bars. I know what I am. Get off me. But it's the mercy of God that cracks me. When I'm like, why would you want anything to do with me when I deserve every bad thing that's ever happened and more, and you still don't? I can't, I can't get that. You put all that on your son when he did nothing. Psalm 30, verse 5. I'm glad he whoops me. I'm glad there's bad times. It teaches me lessons for his anger endureth but a moment. Yeah, I'm afraid of that. I don't want that anger. But it don't last forever, even when he does get on you. In his favor is life. Watch this one. Check this verse out. Weeping may endure for a night, 
You ever sat up at night and cried? Hey, you guys, you ever be so depressed you shut the lights off because you want to be in the darkness? You, you anybody know what I'm talking about? You shut all the lights off and you sit in the corner and it gets dark and it gets gloomy and a battle starts to rage that is beyond normal. Your head's messed up. And you're sinking down in that whirlwind. You're getting sucked down into that vortex. And it's bad. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And all of a sudden, the sun starts to rise, and you come through all that bad times when you were just done, and you just had had it, and you're just ready to just kick back against it all. And his mercies are new every morning. And you've been an idiot. You've been a fool. You've done stupid stuff. Acted like a moron. And yet he still brings that sun up. And the birds are chirping. And the squirrels are jumping around through the leaves of the tree. And the dew's on the ground. And a nice cool breeze is coming through there. And you open up the Bible and he's still there. And he's still God. And he still loves you. Joy comes in the morning. I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known His faithfulness to all generations. Not yours, not mine, but His. Let's stand this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you